Welcome to the Longview Podcast, a show for Catholic school teachers, Catholic school teachers, and anyone who works to form young people in the faith. I'm Joe. And I'm Elizabeth, and we're here to bring you conversation, contemplation, and some food for thought. So grab your red pen, your favorite beverage, and enjoy. Hey, Joe, I wanted to go back to our original Longview theme when we kick off this episode, just because we're we're almost to double digits. I think we've had almost 10 episodes, maybe eight, but I figured it'd be good if we had any new listeners to go back to our theme of the prayer from, well, not actually from Oscar Romero, but attributed to Oscar Romero um, called Prophets of a Future Not Our Own. Um and just talk about that for a few minutes and reflect on that at this point in the year, now that it's May and we're looking back on the work that's happened over the last year. Okay. Where have you seen seeds blossom or what are you waiting to see grow or what are you hopeful for, for the seeds you planted this year? Well, um, my senior's last day is tomorrow. And so thinking of where they were uh, when they entered my classroom to where they are now and already you know grown men and becoming young adults and moving off to college and all that it's just it's it's wild to just you know really see them as um ready uh, for the most part (laughs) um but yeah I mean with my students and then you know flash forward to my freshmen who just finished their first semester uh, first year and you know scared and timid and now like very much you know involved and found their circle of friends for the most part and just, uh, yeah, it's a circle of life. And then to, to the other thing I'm involved with at school is the Modges program, which is our, um, our way of kind of outreaching to to schools that uh, students from other schools that wouldn't necessarily think of coming to Jesuit. And, um, you know, I was able to meet uh, with the meeting yesterday for incoming freshmen, um, some guys that are part of that program. So kind of like had this moment, like circle of life type of thing where, you know, seniors who are products of that program um, now graduating and then uh, now uh, knowing them as eighth graders and now seeing them as next year's freshmen, hopefully, um, you know, just like, yeah, like the journey continues. And <laughs> right when you think, you know, everything's over, it's like everything's just beginning for mm-hmm. an, for a new generation and parents and, and students. And so they're all getting excited and transitioning. So, um, yeah, um, it's exciting. How about you? you know, well, I was going to say, I was going to share this. After our last episode with Meg Hunter-Kilmer, I, uh, I circled back around to the Holy Spirit Prep website just to look it over um, and see what's been going on there recently because it's been a while since I've checked in with them. Um, and the funniest thing, I, I clicked through to some main page with like the president's letter, you know, welcoming you to their website or whatever. And who is on the front page, but one of my former fourth graders, who's a senior now, and he was giving the spiel about the the culture of the school and what is their mission and that they're there to serve. And I just, I just remember him as such a, a gentle and sweet child from the fourth grade. And now to see him as a young man, all grown up as a senior and, and being like the face of his school, I was just so proud. I mean, I can't take a lot of credit for it, but a little bit of like, wow, it's so cool to have seen eight or nine years later, here he is all grown up and just to mm-hmm. kind of follow up. And to have played a part in that journey and not knowing, you know, what seeds you planted or how those have bloomed and, or, you know, getting to see from a distance how they bloomed, which is very beautiful. Yeah. I, I, I need to make myself a note. I want to write a note and like an email, an email at school and make sure that he gets the message from me before he's out of there because seniors are heading out. So it's probably any day now I need to get it over there. So anyway, some thoughts on the long view, taking the long view, the long, the long view. view, but I'm really excited about our episode today because we have our good friend, Dr. Matt Vricky from the office of Catholic schools in the diocese of Dallas joining us, um, an ACE grad and a personal friend of ours and, um, we're just really glad to have him. So welcome to the podcast. Yay. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. Well, we were just talking about what's been going on in May and it's a busy time in your office, I know, and we're all looking forward to a little break. So are you going to get a break this summer? Oh, yeah. 
yeah, I think the personal reflection and renewal is very, very critical. And as much as I would love to just do nothing but be in Dallas when it's 197 degrees <laughs> out, uh, we definitely make sure that we get away and, and spend some time. Um, I found that it's it's much much better if it's cooler out to uh, to begin reflecting on how your life can change and get better. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so true. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, new to heat. You know, I grew up in Alabama, but man, Dallas is its own unique heat. It is like a scorching, blistering heat. Mobile is very heavy. It's like you're kind of drowning and very hot. But Dallas, man, it's like oven temperatures. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Michigan and in Michigan, 88 is hot. At 88, (laughs) they're like, don't go outside. If you exercise, you will die. And we don't set our hot tubs at like 102 degrees up in Michigan. And so, you know, when you're trying to explain to people like how hot is it, it just doesn't make any sense to people anymore. And so, I, you know, I love the, I love every other season. Like, it's amazing. There's no snow. That's great. But, yeah, the summer's a little rough. A little rough. This is, uh, this is finishing up year two in this position, right? Or For, yeah, yeah, second full school year. I started in January of 2016. So it's it's been – I've seen the span now of three school years altogether – and okay. two and a half years down here in Dallas. Is there like a parallel with like, you know, superintendent and like being like head coach of Notre Dame football? Like is, you know, are, are you like in your second, third year? Are you like, uh, you know, winning national championships now or how's that work? Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> I, yeah, I hope that, uh, I hope I'm much more like era than, than say Willingham or David <laughs> you know, in, in year three as we head into things. Um, yeah, you know, I think it's, I do think it's interesting because when I first started my career, every time I had moved a position up until the point that I came down to Dallas, I had actually moved at the time when they hired a new Notre Dame football coach. So they, um, my, when I took my first principal job, they had hired Weiss and then the second principal job, they hired, uh, Brian Kelly. And for both of those guys, first three years, I would have said like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, my career is just like them. And then I had to be like, yeah, so Weiss and I are moving in different directions now. So <laughs> definitely, definitely was not where I wanted to be. <laughs> but so let's go back. You've been, so you've been superintendent. Prior to that, you were principal. Was that your official title? Yeah, so I was I was the school director of Montecino School most recently okay. before I moved down here to be the superintendent. And the school director role was Really, the it was a version of being a headmaster. Um, mm-hmm. It was a private independent school. So it's very similar to what we would call a president down here in Dallas. I had three principals who reported to me at a school of about 140 employees and about 950 kids, which uh, was the largest grade school in Oklahoma. And then before that, I was at St. Pius the 10th school as the principal. We had about 400 kids across the K-8 through grades. And before that was an ACE teacher at St. Catherine in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So how did you end up in ACE? Was this your life path or what, what was your plan? Oh goodness. No, <laughs> I wish, <laughs> I wish it was, it would make it seem like I actually had a plan. Um, <laughs> but the, the ACE for me, I mean, definitely was a choice. I mean, I, I hate it when people say like they accidentally wound up an ACE, even though that's, <laughs> that's probably true. No, I mean, it was, it was a definite choice, but the thought was ACE itself as a destination. So it wasn't meant to get me to teaching. It was really more along the lines of I wanted to write books and I didn't think my life was very interesting. And I had this vision in my head as a junior at Notre Dame of like, well, what I'll do is I'll go and I'll teach these kids in this under-resourced school in the South. And then I'll come back and I'll write this book. And people will be like, wow, isn't this amazing? This guy wrote this book about this. Uh, And... Because that, that was the plan. I mean, it was really like, hey, this, this will be a great way to kind of get those things going. And um, the other part with this is I had looked at another of other Notre Dame programs like Echo at the time, which was essentially like an ACE clone, but for DREs and youth ministers within parishes. And I still did have this call and this feeling that I wanted to do something along the ministry lines. And so the final, the final straw was if I do this DRE thing or youth ministry thing, active connections with kids would probably happen one to two to, you know, three to four hours a week. 
Whereas if I did ACE, I could be in this active ministry for really 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. But I never had any indication or thought when I started doing it that that would be my career path. I just really thought it would be, I'll do this for two years and then I'll move on to do something else, you know, business, mm-hmm. writing, various other things. But from really, I would say the first six months in, when I saw the, the impact that education was having on the lives of these kids in a way that had been in my own life, but had not been as visible, I knew that it wasn't something that I was going to be able to leave behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine that's hard, though, for you at this point to not see kids on a regular basis. Has that been a difficult thing for you? I mean, or do you still get in the classroom relatively frequently? I don't. It's, it's the hardest part of my job. You know, it's one of those elements where no matter how much you can convince yourself you're affecting a system, and, and I mean, that's the narrative I have to talk to myself about is that I'm affecting the lives of 15,000 kids instead of just 100 or 200 or, or you know, even 1,000. Uh, but you don't get that personal connection. So mm-hmm. I don't have the James who the teachers thought was just a little stinker but who I loved and thought was hilarious and mm-hmm. couldn't wait to see what he was going to do to Mrs. Light next and <laughs> pretend like I had to be angry at him when he came in and, and told me about these stories about her. Um, you know, I don't have, I don't have the kids who are going through these, these real struggles in their life. And that had been something that, that I really kind of reflected on before I even thought about the superintendent job. Because I do think you have to be ready for that. You have to be ready for stepping into a different ministry role and taking on a different role. And a lot of it came from reading Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. Yeah. And the idea being you can you can really fulfill your ministry sometimes through giving up the thing that you love the most. And the thing I love the most was that relationship with kids. But mm-hmm. I also knew that there were conditions within my schools as a principal, as a president, as a teacher, which limited those relationships. And the easiest way to correct that is to make sure that it's not just me selfishly having that relationship in one school, but making sure that every teacher gets that option because we're taking away the hindering structures, which are preventing them from really living that gospel message and connecting with kids on this fundamental faith level. So that, I mean, that's what I'm proud of. That's what I'm excited about. But yeah, I mean, it's tough each and every day. And I always kind of tell myself, like, there'll be a point where I'll finally be able to say, okay, like I've done enough and this is where it needs to be. And there's a fifth grade classroom out there where they want somebody to teach reading and I'm going to go do that. And I, I hope it is while I still have my faculties and not when I'm like 75 <laughs> and, and can't do anything else. But, you know, that's, that's where I hope to be someday. Those would be lucky fifth graders, that's for sure. <laughs> they they might not think so because, I mean, at that point, again, I might be 75 and still think Maniac <laughs> McGee is the best thing to read. It is the best thing to read. I love that book. Is there, is there any chance, Matt, uh, Elizabeth shared with, like, her students from her ace time, like, is there any chance that you've somehow gotten a whiff of your, you know, first crew of students uh, back in your early teaching days and where they're at now or? Yeah. So I, I, my first class, I, I, uh, still stay in touch with, with quite a few of them. Uh, a couple of them went to Notre Dame. One of them is dating a Notre Dame guy, which is kind of exciting. One of my Mm -hmm. favorite students of all time is actually an ACE teacher in Brownsville this year. So I feel like it's kind of the full. Does he know that he he is on your favorite students of all time list? Uh, she, um, yes, yes. So it's, uh, (laughs) her name is Jessica Nichols. So if she's listening, now she knows, (laughs) but I mean, like she knew, she knew like we cast her as the lead, we cast her as the lead in every play. Her family was great. Um, you know, even, even today, like it's really exciting to have something that you love so much be something that they have taken on. Um, yeah. I say used to be my favorite student, by the way, because she did go to USC and I can't reconcile uh, with that yet. Yeah. <laughs> Still dealing with that, that emotional trauma. But oh, uh, yeah, I mean, those, those types of things are just really amazing for me to see how that continues to grow. And you have to believe and have to understand that these kids from Tulsa, Oklahoma, aren't thinking about ACE and thinking about Notre Dame until they have that connection to something that you're doing. So in a small way, I think we rub off and, and share just the great news of our own formation with them. Mm-hmm. 
And some days it's really hard to think about that when you're in the trenches and your classroom is a mess and parents are on your case or don't care about their kids or whatever it is and you're just in the thick of it. It's really hard to remember that you are impacting lives, if, even if it's not in your academic teaching. It's just in who you are and who you witness in the classroom and oh, yeah. showing kids how much dignity they have and just sending that gospel message through your actions. Yeah. And I kind of know what she would say. And so like, I haven't, I haven't asked her this question, but I think that she knows because now that she's an ace, I mean, she has to know I was a terrible teacher. Those first <laughs> two years. And I mean, like, those are the elements that like, I think back on it now. And despite that, she's been able to be successful. And, yeah. and I think the difference is like within a Catholic school, you, you can sometimes have a bad lesson. And a lot of times in those first two years, I just, all my lessons were bad. But at the end of the day, if you show them the love of Christ, if you connect with them on this fundamental level, if you help them grow as, as saints, then you can still say that you're successful. And that was really the only thing I could hang my hat on at the end of those, those first two years was really the sense that they did grow as people. They knew I cared about them and they knew that I was invested in their community. But that's that's something, and I think sometimes it's it's more important than the other aspects of our job. Yeah, it's so true, and it's really hard to measure. You know, that's something that's like, well, you can say, oh, this kid made this much progress in reading, and they advanced this, you know, closed this reading gap or whatever. You know, my kid's got fives on their AP exam. And it's really hard to measure that personal growth, and so I think it is something that we don't always value as much because we can't put it down on paper, but it is so important. Yeah, but if there is somebody out there who's figured out how to measure how much kids love God, like, I'll pay for that. Like, that would be great. We'll add that to our, the diocese. Yeah, our repertoire of assessments. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is great that, you know, with, with all the teachers or, you know, former teachers that we've interviewed on this podcast, like, I feel like that's what gives me, that's what nourishes me is just hearing the success stories and just being reminded. Again, like, I mean, that's why we're doing this long view podcast is that, um, in, in the middle of it all, it can be hard and difficult, and but to look back and, and see the big picture, especially those that have taught for uh, a long time and seen the fruit of all those labors, we have our success stories. And okay, you kind of alluded to earlier when you said your first six months teaching, it's like, yeah, you, you kind of get addicted right away with like you, you have those early success stories, and it's like, yeah, I want to do this, I want to do more of this. I mean, I, you know, I'm capable and. And uh, this is such a, a, a fruitful, valuable, noble vocation, I think. And so um, shout out to all you teachers there at the end of the year. Like you are making an impact and it takes a lot of patience, but you'll find out down the road because um, I'm lucky, you know, 10 years in now. And, and to see, you know, I don't want to give necessarily the shout out to my least favorite student, but <laughs> he just graduated with a law degree. <laughs> and it's like, oh man, that's that's what teachers are talking about when it's like you never know. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. And so that makes me proud and that definitely keeps me going with wow, like you never know what what little impact, what big impact, but these kids are um going off to bigger, better things and Yeah. You can't and be, really be careful what you say to him because goodness, yeah. now he has a law degree and he can come <laughs> back at you. <laughs> You're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> That's so true. Well, we're going to transition now to our time of prayer, and we're going to reflect on the gospel that Matt has chosen for us um, with uh, some reflection questions, and then we'll throw it out to Matt for, for some, some thoughts. This is a reading according to the gospel of Luke. One day, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was with him for healing. And some men brought on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They were trying to bring him in and set him in his presence. But not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the tiles into the middle in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, As for you, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to ask themselves, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who but God alone can forgive sins? Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them in reply, What are you thinking in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the one who is paralyzed, I say to you, 
rise, pick up your stretcher, and go home. He stood up immediately before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Then astonishment seized them all, and they glorified God. And, and struck with awe, they said, We have seen incredible things today. Think about the men who carried the paralyzed man into the, the home through the roof right in front of Jesus. Who are the people in your lives who have carried you, have gone through extraordinary ways to get you um, and introduce you to Jesus? Jesus speaks to the paralyzed man and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your stretcher, and go home. What is it that paralyzes you? What is it that keeps you down? And where is it that Jesus is calling you to rise, take those steps, and go? All of those who were witnesses to this miracle, they glorified God and they were struck with awe. What are the miracles that you are a witness to in your life today? How can we better be seized with astonishment and wonder? And how can we better glorify God in response? A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. One day, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was with him for healing. And some men brought on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They were trying to bring him in and set him in his presence. But not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the tiles into the middle in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, As for you, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to ask themselves, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who but God alone can forgive sins? Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them in reply, What are you thinking in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who is paralyzed, I say to you, Rise pick up your stretcher, and go home. He stood up immediately before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Then astonishment seized them all, and they glorified God, and struck with awe, they said, We have seen incredible things today. The Gospel of the Lord. Matt, what message does this gospel have for teachers today? Well, I just think... Um, First of all, thank you for this. I mean, it's it's just great to kind of have these quiet moments to kind of think and reflect on that. Um, so I think that the, there's kind of two interesting perspectives that you can take with this as, as a teacher. Because the two scenarios here are, let's say we're putting ourselves in the perspective of the paralytic. He either has this incredible faith where he knows about Jesus believes that he would be healed and then found some way to convince other people to take him up on top of the roof. And that, that can't be their first plan. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't have like gotten these guys together and been like, Hey, look, I, I need to meet this Jesus guy. Um, the easiest way to do it would be for us to like find the most crowded day ever and go at it. <laughs> and so, I mean, like, I think that's, that's one scenario we can look at. The, the other scenario here is like, he didn't know about this and they took him against his will. And there are times when I've felt like both ways. And, and I think as a teacher, you know, just starting from that perspective, there are so many times where like, I just don't know how to do this. I know that it's critical that I reach this kid. I know that it's critical that I help change their life. And I know that together as a team, we can figure this out but I can't get how I would do it alone. 
And we have to convince those around us to carry us, to help us through that, to get to the point of understanding how we can connect on a spiritual level, on a social level, on an academic level, sometimes with these kids. But we ourselves are the people who are broken. And I think sometimes, too, we're also in a position where we know it's not working and we don't think that there's a way through, but we still have to rely on that team. And, you know, those are the moments when you're like, look, I disagree that James can be a good kid. <laughs> I don't think that he can, <laughs> but you guys think so. So great. Tell me how we're going to do it, you know, and work on these things together. I think sometimes we can also look at it from the other perspective, which is if you switch perspectives then, and now we're looking at this group of people who have happened on the paralytic, sometimes we're that teacher who walks into a classroom and you're like, I don't know why this is working. Like you seem like this shouldn't work, but your enthusiasm is so strong that I'm going to help you with that. And that could be a fellow teacher. It could be a kid. It could be someone who just has a ton of passion and, you know, needs our help and needs our support and really our belief in order to get them to where they need to go. And I think there's other times where we run into kids in our classroom who are sitting there and they're broken and they don't know they're broken and they don't know that they need help and they don't want help. Or maybe it's not a kid. Maybe it's a parent who doesn't see these situations as clearly as they need to be seen. And I think the question then is once we've identified that and we understand what section of this parable we're in for whatever point in our life that is, I think the next question is, well, how far are we willing to go to change that situation? How much are we willing to do to turn ourselves over to somebody else who maybe doesn't believe as hard as we believe, even though we need their help? Or likewise, how far are we going to take these kids? What are we going to lead them to? What are we going to help them understand and help them to grow on? Because it can be very simple to run into the paralytic, especially the one who doesn't believe and say, you know what? Great. I'm giving up on you. Mm -hmm. And you can walk in and it's a crowd. And it's not like anyone's going to notice. I mean, like no one in this scenario, if the guys decided not to get up on the roof would have been like, well, you know, you really didn't do enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they, they could have gotten to the edge of the crowd. They could have even gotten to the front door and just been like, dude, look, it's not going to happen. You know, we did mm -hmm. everything we could and no one would have faulted them for that. And I guess, I guess what I would say is that I hope that teachers out there, whether in the Catholic schools and public schools or other places, never get to the point where they accept that as an answer, where mm -hmm. they accept that we've done enough and it's now okay to give up on a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and I also hope that in our own brokenness, that if we're struggling with things, that we can try to convince the people around us to carry us and to go that extra mile as well and to not give up on us because, you know, we're not always in the driver's seat on these things. And, and that's the strongest part that I think that I take away from this more than anything else, which is our schools ultimately are a communal faith. And, and I, again, think that's true, whether you're in a Catholic school, a Christian school and a non-Christian school and a public school, you're still a community and you're a community that has to carry each other with this. I also think sometimes the best answer isn't always obvious because I would not have said, this is the best answer. <laughs> this is, this is the most efficient way to get things done. Yeah. And yet it was the only way to make sure that we could get the kids to where they need to go. And I think that comes back to things that Joe said. I mean, you just don't know always, you know, what your, what your perceived weakest student's going to do once you get them through the roof, you know, maybe they stand up and walk out with a law degree. It's a, yeah. it's an exciting thing. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know, a lot of times I think we, we opt for efficiency, you know, like what this is getting you up on the roof, taking the tiles off and like lowering you down is not efficient. I'm not going to do that. That's going to be a waste of my time. way too hard. And I think efficiency gets in the way of ministry sometimes. And sometimes to minister to people is not efficient. You know, um, I think I was thinking when Joe was reading about who who has carried you to Jesus, I was thinking of people that had stopped what they were doing when they had work to do and sat with me and listened to me or just 
you know, visited with me, which was not efficient, but it was the way that I was brought to Jesus. Um, so. Yeah. And I think that takes vulnerability on both sides because on the one hand, it's trusting somebody else to get you there. And sometimes it's also that, that vulnerability of the others that their time isn't going to be wasted. Because if we get into this whole kind of economy of salvation, then it makes a heck of a lot more sense not to spend a lot of time with the, with the kids who are most difficult. It makes mm-hmm. a ton more sense to say, well, you know, let's save the 90 that we can do in 10 hours and the other 10 that are going to take 100 hours each. You know, if we get to them, great. You know, if not, don't worry about it. But sometimes we got to break through those roofs to make sure that it's there. And I'm just, I'm continuously struck by, by this gospel and it almost changes for me day to day about whether I'm the paralyzed person or whether I'm the person carrying somebody else, sometimes Mm -hmm. even within its own day. And I think Mm -hmm. that's where, I think you can be a hero on either side of this. You can be a hero who's, who has been allowed help, or you can be a hero who's helping. Yeah, I love that you pulled that part out because honestly, when I read this, I always just go to the punchline of the gospel. You know, I'm I'm going to like, oh, Jesus says your sins are forgiven, rise and you know get up, take your stretcher, go home. And sometimes I miss the beginning where this the scene is set, and that's really where I need to find myself. Not so much in the punchline, but in in the little in the little details of the beginning of the story. So I'm really glad that you brought that out. Yeah, it's for I would say just within the job that I have now, we spend a lot of time focusing on what I call the decision before the decision. Mm -hmm. So if you spend all of your time cleaning up messes, if you spend all of your time worrying about the person who just did this visible thing, which is horrible, you you sometimes forget like nobody gets to these huge mistakes overnight. There's a series of decisions that you take. There's a series of things you don't do, which you lead you somewhere else. And so if we start spending more time worrying about the decision before the decision, that's where you can really have this, this life-changing impact. And I, I think it's too often that we just want to correct a problem as opposed to knowing this is how, this, how we could make sure this problem never happens. Mm-hmm. And within so many of these Gospels with Jesus, you know, we reflect on what did he do to fix this? And we forget, like, it took a lot of work to get to the fix. And that's something which I constantly remind myself of, because when you have a diocese as big as we are, the fixes aren't always obvious or easy. And you have to spend a lot of time getting there. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about our diocese. Um, So we're we're how many schools we have? We're almost 40. Yeah, we have approximately 40 sites between, depending on how you count it, 36 to 38. And that depends on how you count middle schools and high schools, which are kind of combined and put together. And close to 15,000 students altogether. It's the 34th largest school system, private school system in the country. So that's pretty big. And how often do you get to visit schools? Do you go once a year to schools or more or well, we have our office actually divides the school system out among the three superintendents. So for most schools, it's going to be one to two major events a year that I would get out to. But for kind of my portfolio of 10 schools, I tend to be out there at least once every two weeks and sometimes wow. more than that. And just depending on kind of where where our various elements are happening. Uh, and there's significant visits. I mean, so I, I was down at St. Joseph Waxahachie for 10 hours last week, and I'm going to be down there again for eight hours this week. And we just kind of focus on communities that have the most need. And, um, and, I, and I love that part of it. But again, my, my working with this is, tends to be much more along the lines of those senior level positions, the principals, the presidents, the producers, the pastors. And it's tough because, again, with, even with 36 sites and only 180 school days, even if you were just to go to schools all the time, you'd only get to them five times a year. So we really mm-hmm. had to kind of break it up and say, instead of just saying, well, I'll kind of wave at you and stop by for an hour, we wanted to make sure we were forging stronger relationships at eight to nine schools instead. I really like that. And I had no idea that you all did it that way. But that's that's great. So each of the superintendents takes... 10 or 11 or however many schools, nine or 10 schools 
and you really focus and, and dig deep in those schools throughout the year. Is that right? Yeah. And we don't focus on like, say a particular portfolio of one superintendent's going to take under-resourced schools and another superintendent is going to take high schools. We mix it up geographically and we mix it up by need. And so mm -hmm. I tend to take schools that are either going through a principal transition or have just been through a principal transition within the last three years mm -hmm. because my kind of on-the-ground experience as a principal and a president has been very recent. So it helps me to kind of get into the understanding and the training aspects that they need to come on. We have other principals, if, if a school is struggling, say, or uh, other superintendents that if the principal or the school is struggling more with data or maybe analytics or wants to put together some new programs that they'll come into place. And Sister Dawn, a lot of times, will tackle Catholic identity. She'll tackle personnel issues. But all of those things are kind of just loose affiliations that we, we mm -hmm. put together. Some of it mm -hmm. is based on what's the personality of the superintendent and what's the personality of the principal. Because just like our teachers and just like our kids, everybody has things that they respond to better or worse than other people. And my personality works particularly well if you're a self-starter and you don't need a follow-up or a checklist in order to get things done. Um, that's not the way every principal is. Mm -hmm. And Veronica is a checklist person. So yeah. it's perfect and, you know, in that yeah. sense to make sure that we can put those things together. That's a really great model. I love that. I mean, I, just thinking from the school level and schools that I've worked in where the principal or just the whoever was kind of the, the head person who had the big vision was on the ground most frequently. I felt like those were the situations when I was working in schools that it was most effective and things worked the best. And when I was in situations where leadership was, you know, mostly in their office or um, just just not as accessible or not as casually available. And it felt like a really big deal to have to go like make an appointment with them. It was much less likely that I would do it and much more likely that little problems would just kind of keep popping up because if the principal's walking the halls every day and they, she just pops in and says like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, hey, great. I'm glad you're here. I had a question. We can tackle it very quickly versus like, I need to make an appointment and you clear your schedule and when can I come? And so I think just having those, the frequency of, of contact, even if it's not like a major issue, but just that you're there on a regular basis can really help make it more normal to have leadership helping you and, and see the big picture of what's going on in the diocese all at once. A absolutely. I mean, that's, a, that's exactly it. And really what I found after the first six months were people weren't calling the office. They weren't emailing us. They weren't asking questions because they assumed we were too busy. And mm -hmm. so when everyone assumes you're too busy, you don't have anything to do. <laughs> the, you know, the second, the second part of that, though, is also people don't always know how important a situation is. And without the ability to kind of coach through that and to talk through that and to have that relationship, that's, that's a second part of it. But on the same way, if I as a superintendent don't know the flock and I don't know mm -hmm. that this person almost never calls and when I hear from them, and they sound a little out of breath, I better get in my car and go down there because there's a, there's a huge problem. Then I'm not responding in the way that I need to, you know, really as, as a part shepherd, as Pope Francis has called us to be. Mm -hmm. And I think the last part is it is it's no different from when you're teaching. If a parent only hears from you when you're upset or when their kid did something bad, you're never actually going to get to a relationship. Yeah. And my goal, as I, as I said earlier, is I want to be with you before we get to the decision. I want to be at the decision before the decision. And we can only do that if we're having this dialogue and we're having this conversation and you call and say, here's where I think that I want to go with this. And then we can walk through that path together instead of saying, here's what I already messed up. You know, now help me yeah. kind of figure these things out. Yeah. So it's been, I think it's been effective. Uh, it's not where we want it to be because, you know, I still think it's really difficult to be present and available for even 11 people. And in that portfolio still might be 5,000 kids. Mm -hmm. And so there's just so much stuff that happens on a daily basis that I often feel we're not present enough for these principles. But I do know, you know, just based on the feedback that we get from them, that 
we do have a personal relationship. They're not afraid to call anymore. They do know that they can pick up the phone and their particular superintendent will be ready to answer something. And so it's, it's no longer this whole sense of, well, call the diocese and in three days they'll get back to you. Well, you know, in three days the kid will be gone, the school's on fire, and the lawyers are already <laughs> circling. So we try to be more, <laughs> more reflective than that. I want to ask uh, Matt, I think, because what will speak to me, but I think will speak to a lot of uh, just teachers too, is, you know, what what is it that gives you strength? What is it that gives you hope? You know, and that, I mean, that's the kind of language that speaks to me as far as, um, you know, when I do get too cynical or too pessimistic, like, and I kind of need a kind of like a wake up or at least some inspiration and moving forward when, when, you know, if a particular school community or whatever, you know, it's, it's going through hard times, especially like, you know, just taking those first few steps and, you know, I just want to hear from you and, and what is it that feeds you so that you're able to give, um, give all of your gifts to where there's great needs around you. So you can yeah. speak to that. <laughs> well, so it's, it's really three things. The, the first is the teaching core that we have within this diocese is absolutely amazing. And we do this annual college in heaven standard award. We have a group here called the Halo Initiative, which sponsors this and really looks at teachers that are helping kids get to college in heaven. And when we get in these teacher of the year portfolios and we read through the things that these teachers are doing, it's humbling beyond belief. And this year, you know, we've had teachers who were supporting tornado relief and put together food drives. And then on Saturdays after they were done with classes, you know, drove up to help with the rollout tornadoes and various other things. Um, we have a teacher who came from the private sector and went into teaching, is doing a ministry aspect, and then began to pay the tuition for two kids in their class. Wow. wow. I mean, like, just these absolutely inspiring, heart-wrenching stories of people who make the sacrifice that, like, I wish that I had the moral fortitude to do. And I see that and, and that gives me strength because that's exactly why I'm doing this. I'm doing this so that those people won't quit, that they won't get <laughs> frustrated with Catholic schools and say, you know, gosh, the bureaucracy is just too much and the diocese doesn't help us and we don't have good books. Like that's my job to make sure more than anything else, they don't leave. And so, I mean, that's the first thing. The second thing is I have seen how quickly these schools can transform from feeling like everything is wrong to being amazing overnight. And even in just the two years that I've been here, we've had schools that were sitting at an enrollment of a hundred kids and they were talking about closing it. And, you know, next year we'll be sitting at 150 and wow. has the new really revised approach. And they were, losing a ton of money. And now, you know, they're not, and now they're not going to be a drain on the parish. And that can happen so quickly within a Catholic school if we get the right people into place. And I think it speaks to the power of the Holy spirit. It speaks to the power of our religion that these things that would be broken in any other situation can be revived and, and can grow. And so, you know, that tells me um, each and every day that no matter how dark it seems, it can get better if we're continuing to willing to invest and to think more about this. And then third, and I think this is kind of the most important thing. I come from a diocese, which is losing, and this is up in Michigan, losing essentially a third of their schools every decade. Mm. And as you look at other areas across the country, I was in a room not too long ago with um, about 150 other superintendents and they were trying to make a point. And so they said, well, who in this room actually thinks you'll build schools within the next 10 years? And I raised my hand and I looked across the entire auditorium, you know, again, about 150 superintendents or so in there. And there was only one other hand up. And I looked closer and it was Veronica Alonzo. Who <laughs> but <laughs> we, uh, we are going to need, you know, about 10 schools over the next decade. I mean, we have 1.3 million Catholics in this diocese. 
and comparative dioceses of our size have between 150 and 170 schools. What? <clears throat> now, our average school size is much higher. So, you know, we're, we're looking at average school sizes of closer to 600, which is just totally different from anywhere else in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I talked about our school in Oklahoma, 950 kids. We were the largest Catholic school of any kind in Oklahoma. And, you know, we would be like fifth just in Dallas for K through eight schools. Mm -hmm. So it gives you a sense, I think, of just the hope of this area. And, you know, when we continue to hear over and over again that the Catholic church is shrinking and it's, and it's falling and all of that is true, except in Dallas. And this can really be a beacon of hope to the rest of the country to say, we can do this in the right way. We can change it in a way that people haven't seen in years. And, you know, those are really the things I think that, that energize me every day. That was a oh, long winded answer. No, that's that was ex excellent. That's answer. exactly what I was looking for. Like, I mean, what gives me strength too is, is, you know, yes, there's suffering death, but there's always resurrection and, to see like, you know, from one lens, it's like, oh, the church is getting smaller, it's dying, Catholic schools, but then like, no, there's life and there's growth and you just don't hear enough of those those stories. And I mean, we, we see them in small ways, but just to, to hear that, no, this is really happening. I mean, th this is terribly selfish, but to also say like that, I mean, that's why you have your, your radio show and your podcast, right? <laughs> to share the good news of Catholic schools, is to, to tell people that like there's, there's life going on and it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. And it's wonderful and joyful. Yeah. If you're not have... listening to the super hour, you can find it <laughs> on iTunes. You're too nice. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have schools, I mean, to that point in some of the poorest neighborhoods in Dallas that have waiting lists. And we have schools in the richest neighborhoods in Dallas that have waiting lists. And we've got people who are desperate to build schools up in Collin County. And so, you know, it's just really an exciting place to be in um, from a national perspective. The NCEA publishes these stats and our diocese is actually at 97% capacity, which again wow. is another wow. great problem to have because so yeah. many other places are saying, you know, we need to lose 20% of our schools over the next decade. And we're looking at this to say, you know, how quickly we can build. And that's a really exciting time. That's amazing. All right. I have two last things for you. I want you to give um, a little word to parents who are thinking about putting their kids in Catholic schools, but aren't sure financially it's going to work uh, or aren't sure that Catholic schools are, are where they need to put their kids. So what do you say to them? And also, what do you say to our teachers? Give our teachers just a little word of end-of-the-year encouragement. Sure. Well, first and, first and foremost to parents, I fully understand the sacrifice that this takes in order to make this type of choice for your kids. And I think that as you look at educational options throughout town, there's a lot of times you can look at this and say, well, is the Catholic school just the paid version of this thing that I could get within the public schools? And the simple answer to that is if that's true, you know, as if you look at both options, if you go to the public school and you come to the Catholic school and the Catholic school is just the paid version, um, then I wouldn't want you to spend your money on it. You should go to public school at that point. What I can tell you is that what we're building here in Dallas are Catholic schools, which are so different from their public school counterpoints, which are not just about this academic approach, but are really social and moral development programs within an academic context that are rooted in the sacraments that are based on the idea that we're going to raise and form good people and really get your children to college and heaven. I'm not saying that can't happen in a public school, but I am telling you it does happen each and every day within a Catholic school. And with that said, the reality is that that still is too expensive for some families, which is why the diocese every year commits close to $8 million in financial aid across our various partners and partner organizations in order to make sure that we can get people into place. And so always look at us and, and see how we can help, how your parish can help, how your local Catholic school can help before you would automatically assume that it's just not for you. Because the median income of families at some of our schools is as low as $19,000 a year. And wow. we also have schools which have a median income of closer to $200,000 a year. We have all sorts of schools for all types of people here within this diocese, and, and we can always help you out. And to our teachers out there, I am 
just so impressed by each and everything that you do. I'm, I'm, this is going to sound weird, but I'm jealous of you each and every day. <laughs> you get to be on the front lines and you really are our heroes at the diocese. I know that you don't see us very much and it's really not our role to be present with you in that way. Uh, but no, it's not out of a sense of not wanting to be a part of that. It's really out of a sense of wanting to serve you in a different way. And one of the ways we do that is, is actually by having the pictures of the teachers of the year up in our conference room as a reminder of us every year of who really are the people that we should be supporting, who are the people who are heroes, who are the people that 40 hours a week are working with the kids. And I'm just so thankful for each and every one of you and, and what you do for all of us. Thank you, Matt. That's awesome. So encouraging and just so good to chat with you. You always bring so much hope. Every time I I hear you talk about Catholic schools, I just walk away with so much hope, especially for our diocese. So we're really glad to have you here. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, Feeling is mutual. I mean, this is this is energizing. I don't don't normally do other people's podcasts, but this was was definitely worth it and, and very fun. It's nice to have you on the other side of the mic and to get to ask the questions. wraps up our episode for today. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Longview podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to subscribe on iTunes to be up to date on our latest episodes. Also share our podcast with a friend, another teacher, an ace friend, your mom, anyone that you think would enjoy our conversation. Your reviews and comments on iTunes help us to show up in the search bar. So we always appreciate that. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Facebook at Dallas Ace Advocates, and we're also on Twitter at Dallas Advocates. We'll see you here next time on the Longview Podcast. <laughs>